This is Ethan, and I'm here with Dave, and together we are Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. Black and white and weird all over, bonus episode 5 centimeter. The following is part of our special series of page-by-page journeys through black and white and weird all over. The Lost Photographs of Weird Al Yankovic, 1983-1986, through with the author John Bermuda Schwartz. Today, we will explore Chapter 3. A glimpse into the recording process overdubs. Make sure to grab your book so you can follow along with us. And be careful not to get a nasty paper cut. It's Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al Podcast. It's a podcast about Weird Al. It's Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al Podcast. Seriously, the whole podcast is about Weird Al. Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al Podcast. You don't have to listen, but we're glad you are. Dave and we are so excited to continue our conversation on black and white and weird all over the lost photographs of Weird Al Yankovic 1983 through 1986 with the book's author, John Bermuda Schwartz. Welcome back to the podcast, Bermuda. Thank you. Nice to be back. All right. So we're ready to dive into Chapter 3, A Glimpse into the Recording Process Overdubs. So if you have your books, open up to Chapter 3 and follow along. All right, so immediately I see a picture of Al in the studio. What can you tell us about this recording session? Well, this was for the uh, In3D uh, sessions, and these would have been the original songs uh, at this point. This was uh, early October of 1983. Uh, the, The band had come in and already cut... It's five or six tracks, and uh, on October 1st, actually, and then October uh, 2nd through 5th or 6th or whatever it is, um, were were the overdubs, were extra guitar parts, uh, maybe percussion parts, uh, background vocals, uh, saxophone, you know, those kind of things. Uh, you know, Al's vocals uh, might have been cleaned up and, and added and stuff like that, but, you know, so the, they get the band in and out of the studio you know, quickly, you know, that's always first. And then after that, all the, all the other cool stuff is done. You know, it's uh, overdub. Um, it's called overdubbing. What is this console that Al is uh, sitting next to? Well, actually, those are just a couple of tape machines that reel-to-reel recorders that uh, uh, when, when the songs are, the songs are recorded on, on multi-track, multi-channel uh, uh, machines at that time. You know, it, was, it wasn't digital then. Uh, think of it like Photoshop, like where you would have different layers in a Photoshop photo and you could do different things. You could do something to one layer and not have it affect the other mm-hmm. layer. You can do something to a layer and, and shift it. You can reverse it without affecting the other stuff. Well, in a re- the recording process, each track of uh, each channel of the recorder of, of the tape machine uh, is able to have something different on it. In the case of drums, uh, the bass drum might be on one channel, so that can be controlled separately later. The snare drum will be on a, its own channel. There will be a couple of uh, mics hanging over the drums, uh, over the left and the right side of the drums, to sort of get a spatial uh, uh, sound of the drums and a little bit of the room sound. Those are called overheads. Uh, there are probably going to be mics on each of the toms. Uh, you know, So the drums may be split across six or seven channels, wow. uh, six or seven tracks of the tape. Bass being basically a one-note, you know, non-stereo instrument, it gets its own channel. Uh, the guitar, you know, it, it may be a stereo-sounding guitar. You may have a, be going through something that makes it 
have its own space. That would be on two channels, so you could get left and right. Mm-hmm. Uh, vocal, a single vocal would be on its own channel. Um, you know, background vocals would be spread across a few other channels. You know, what, basically whatever the engineer needs to do to control uh, the different instruments and voices in the end to make it balance out nice, to make it sound nice, uh, you know, or to maybe affect the the uh, tone of one thing without affecting the tone of something else, those need to be on separate tracks. So at this time, I think we were recording on 24 tracks, which is a pretty decent amount of, of tracks for, you know, most of these songs. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of occasions where they would run two of these machines, and one track of each machine was used to sync up to each other. They would put a code on there, a SMPTE code, which is Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers. Wow, that's probably exactly what that means. <laughs> SMPTE. That's probably exactly what that means. There would be a code on there, like a, a you know, computer type code, that would link up the machines so these two separate machines could run essentially, you know, they would each lose a track, but they would essentially be able to run 46 tracks of audio. Wow. You know, now in today's world, in today's, you know, using Pro Tools and stuff, I mean, 46 tracks is a piece of cake. You can do that on your iPad. <laughs> uh, but back then, you know, that was the only way to really expand. And, you know, the more bands got into, you know, this this was not the Beatles. This was not being able to record stuff just on two or three tracks. You know, there was, there's a lot of, there's strings, there's sound effects, there's a lot of vocal parts. Uh, there's extra guitar parts, there's all sorts of synth parts, there's percussion. There's a lot of stuff going on. So sometimes 24 tracks is not enough. You hook up another machine and you're able to get a total of 46 out of the two machines. Anyway, when it's time to make a short story long, when it's time to mix the song and make basically a stereo mix of it, the, the one that you would hear on the LP or on the cassette or on the CD, that is mixed too. That is you know played and then recorded on one of these machines behind him. And those machines are uh, use half-inch tape, uh, and and uh, they're just two tracks. It's left left channel, right channel, which is stereo. So those are one or both of those machines would be used to record the final mix of a song, and that would be as what is sent off to be uh, hmm. made into a record, basically. So he's just this happened to be at the back of the control room, and he just that happened to be where that chair was, and. Al is looking essentially out into the studio. You can't tell from there, but you know, knowing how these machines were set up, he's looking through the glass into the studio uh, at somebody doing something. I assume. Oh wow! Cool. And what whatever was going on, obviously it was more important for me to get a picture of Al than <laughs> than whoever was in the studio. <laughs> so hence you have, uh, yeah, that's a nice shot of Al. Well, moving on to the next page. We've got a bunch of folks here, including Jim West on the left side. Jim West, what chord is that? It's 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 not a chord at all. It's an impossible. Jim is mugging for the camera. He's okay. not looking into the camera, but he's definitely he's definitely aware I'm taking a picture. Uh, I mean, there are other pictures of him where he's looking into the camera. He knew I was taking a picture here. Uh, yeah, he's not playing a real chord for all you guitar players out there. Don't try and do that because it's not going to sound very good. It would sound like me. It would sound like me singing. Have I sung for you yet today? Not today. Not yet. I haven't. Oh. oh. Well, these pictures, you know, they they bring back memories of the way we were. Memories. 
like a photos <laughs> in a book. You can read it while you cook. The way it was. Yeah, not a real chord. Not a real chord, not a real song. By the way, the shirt he's wearing says The Baked Potato. The Baked Potato is a jazz club oh, cool. uh, here in L.A., a famous jazz club. Perhaps one of the one of just a handful of jazz clubs. L.A. is not a big jazz city, and it's one of the few places. It's still it's still around. Uh, oh, wow. In fact, it is currently oh, wow. owned by uh, Don Randy. Don Randy was a keyboard player in a group of studio musicians in the '60s and '70s, known as the Wrecking Crew. They recorded a lot of songs for L.A. artists, hmm. for the Mamas and Papas Association, the Monkees, Beach Boys, uh, Neil Diamond. Um, long list, long list of uh, people that they worked for. Anyway, Don was a keyboard player in that. He still owns the club uh, to this day. That's awesome. Now, let's see. The uh, next page, Let's we'll start on the bottom. Let's start, that's Rick Derringer, for those who don't know what Rick lo- looks like. And he's, well, he's flashing two-piece signs, but <laughs> he's got this thing, it's kind of a steampunk kind of a, Kind of a deal going on in his left hand. What that is, that's my ratchet. And and that's oh. a sound effect that I use <laughs> predominantly on the polkas. And that's got, it's hard to tell, but but there's a, the part that's facing down, there's a little wooden cylinder on there and it's got uh, notches in it. And then those two parts that stick up like a V have little like thin um, blades of wood that lean up against these notches, and as you turn the handle and turn the notches against the blades of wood, they click. But <laughs> when you do it fast enough, they, you know, it goes tick, 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 So the ratchet goes like that. And that's, and you hear that uh, on the polka medleys a lot. So I don't know if we were working oh, wow. on a polka medley for this or if I just happened to have it in there or, or what, but he obviously thought it would be amusing to to make that part of his uh, peace sign and <laughs> and uh, not knowing not knowing it was going to show up in a book and that thousands of people would see that and uh, you know probably thinking oh he's shooting black and white these will never see the light of day but how wrong he was how wrong how very how very, very wrong how long did you guys work with Rick Derringer well, Rick produced our, our very first album in 19... Uh, actually, we recorded it in 1982. We recorded it before we had a record deal. Oh, wow. What, what gall. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. It was, we, we did that. Uh, everyone worked for free wow. on, on spec, on speculation that there would be a, a, a deal that comes out of it and people would get paid. So nobody made nothing. Wow. Uh, I'm not even sure that Rick wow. got paid for his time. I think he was he was doing it on spec as well. Wow. And... Oh, wow. Uh, because we didn't, there was nobody to pay for it. There wasn't a label to, to back it up. So in shopping Al to a record label, uh, there was an album, you know, pretty much ready to go. Now at that time, we hadn't recorded Ricky yet, and uh, I don't think we had recorded Buckingham Blues yet. But I think everything else, I Love Rocky Road, was was recorded at that time. Uh, this is not the same studio though. We were that was a different studio. But Rick was there the first time for us, and he produced our albums all the way through uh, UHF. And basically, that was, uh, I think, he, I, I guess he had a six-album contract hmm. as the producer, and that being the sixth album, you know, the sixth studio album, um, that was the end of, of uh, his contract, and 
Uh, Al decided that, uh, you know, Al was a sufficiently good producer at that point, which he certainly was. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and we went on from there. And and it was great working with Rick. And uh, I should add also that, that Jim West re- was, was just sort of getting into things when we recorded what became the first album. He wasn't really, he wasn't up to speed. He didn't play very much on that album. In fact, he wasn't in the studio at all when we recorded the first album. He came in and worked on Ricky and... Uh, uh, Buckingham Blues, but he uh, uh, he wasn't there for the first album. That was all Rick Derringer on guitar. Hmm. Wow, almost cool. all, almost all. My wow. brother came in and and <laughs> and did a couple of things uh, as, as overdubs, but uh, so to answer your question, Rick was there for the first six albums, and Al was the producer for the next uh, eight studio albums. Wow, starting with Off the Deep End. Wow. All right. So, what can you tell us about this picture above Rick? All oh, right. Uh, those were some of the uh, background singers that came in. That's uh, on the left is Petsy Powell, P-E-T-S-Y-E Powell. Uh, on the far right is Andrea Andrea Robinson, and then in between Al and Andrea is Patty Brooks. Now Patty Brooks um, was uh, sang a lot, did a lot of studio work, and had several albums out on her own. And she was kind of best known for uh, she sang a song called After Dark, which was on the Thank God It's Friday soundtrack. So she was sort of known for that. Uh, so that was actually very cool to have her in uh, in to do that. I mean, she was a well-known singer at the time. Did you work with any of these ladies on additional albums as well? Um, I, I don't think so. I think, I think that was it. And I don't know why, but I, I believe I don't remember seeing them again. Uh, and it was a different set of background singers on the first album, for that matter. Hmm. Then again, I believe they were working on spec as well. So, uh, I mean, I can tell you that even as a band member, it was years before I got paid. Oh, wow. But they bought dinner, so it was okay. Right. And I got a dollar. I think I got my dollar, like, like on the videos. Do you still have your contracts or, or, or checks where they gave you a dollar? No. Well, it was actually a dollar. It was literally a dollar bill. And, uh, oh, wow. No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I think in order to get the dollar, I had I had to not keep a copy of the contract. Right. <laughs> I had to sign something and then give that away. And then they gave me the dollar. And they said, shut up. Don't ever tell anyone you made a dollar. <laughs> oh, darn it. Now I'm, now I'm going to have to give it back. You, mean, you don't have this dollar framed and hanging above your desk, your home studio or anything? I should have. Yeah. I should have done that. No, I, I, needed, I needed the dollar too yeah, badly yeah. back then. <laughs> Doll, hey, dollar was a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope you bought something good with that dollar. <laughs> I probably bought two candy bars on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, flip to the next page, and we have a two-page spread. Uh, what can you tell us about this? Boy, well, that's that's uh, this is Studio A at the Scotty Brothers uh, uh, record studio called Santa Monica Sound Recorders. This is the, the big room. This is the room where we did the drums. If there were horn players and stuff that came in, they would they would be in this room. There were also a couple of other... Uh, booths, uh, separate rooms actually with glass doors. That those were padded as well. You could put guitar amps in one or put vocals in one, and seal that off from this room. Uh, one of those other two rooms had a piano in it, had a grand piano. So if they someone was playing the piano at the same time as the drums, let's say, they would close the door and you could still see through it, but the drums wouldn't leak into that room, wouldn't leak into the piano mics, and the piano wouldn't leak into the to the drum mics. Mm. 
so you could you could isolate things and that way control each of them when you do the mix later so but this was the main room that exit door off to the right went out to the parking lot that's typically uh, uh, behind the behind the uh, building that's where I would pull in and uh, load my drums through well that's mm -hmm. where we all came in actually mm -hmm. uh, that was not the street entrance so on the left uh, we have uh, Rick Derringer Rick is like uh, you know what's what's with you in the photos you always have every time I see you, you have a camera with you. <laughs> you you did this at Cherokee Studios last year and now you're back with the camera here at Scotty Brothers what's <laughs> what are you writing a book you're writing a book or something am I going to be in it do I get a dollar <laughs> well the answer is answers are yes and no actually yes yes and no you do not get a dollar or a book and uh, and if you know I, I, I if I if I was a nice guy I'm a nice guy I'm not a bad guy but uh, I should I should get together his photos and I should uh, get those to him. That he probably he might like those. He might not like this photo. Maybe actually he wouldn't like that other. He probably he he doesn't want to see these. Never mind. So the guy the guy to the right. Oh my God! He's holding a beer. He's drinking oh, wow. beer on the job. My goodness. That's uh, Jimmy Zavala. Jimmy yeah. Z. And he played yeah. uh, saxophone and uh, uh, I think he did harmonica. On, on some things as well, I think. But he played saxophone on uh, That Boy Could Dance and probably some other things that he was called in to do. And uh, that was the beauty of, of, you know, when you'd call someone in to do stuff, if they were working on a couple of songs, you know, it wasn't, you didn't have a day that you worked on a song and then the next day you'd work on a different song. You would, whoever had to do overdubs, if they were working on a few songs, they did all of those songs in one day, mm -hmm. uh, just as we did all of the songs in, in one day or sometimes two days. Uh, you know, they, they would cater to the person coming in and uh, adjust the schedule that way. And Al scheduled all of that. He was very good about making sure that, that things were very efficient. He figured out, you know, roughly how long it would take for, for Jimmy to run through it a few times and do it and maybe take a couple of takes and then do a few songs. And then, okay, that's going to take uh, 90 minutes. So we're going to do vocals next. I'll have the girls come in, you know, 90 minutes after he would start so they're not just sitting there the whole time i mean they were welcome to come in but you know he would schedule people so they would come in and and typically as soon as they got there you know they he was ready for them you know they they could come in and, and there wasn't much wasted time it was very the recordings were very very efficient you know from the demo process so that we knew what we were going to play when we get into the studio we didn't waste studio time working up parts we already knew going in what we were doing to uh, everyone who was overdubbing, you know, keeping the schedule efficient for them, you know, so they didn't sit around all day unless they wanted to. Uh, they, they were certainly welcome to, you know, this, none of this stuff was a big secret, you know, to the people who were working on it. So that's, uh, you know, you could almost Photoshop an iPhone into Jimmy's hand there. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what he's looking at, but he's not looking at the beer and he doesn't have a phone. So, um, yeah, actually at, at the end of 1983, I don't suppose he would have a phone. Oh, well. Now we had a very enjoyable interview with Jimmy Z. And if you're interested in checking that out, it's back on episode 55 inch. Now, let's move on to the next spread, which is Al with Lisa Popeil. Ah! Well, it's... First off, you would imagine Al had seen a microphone before, but, you know, you, looking at this, you, <laughs> per, perhaps not. Uh, that's for the technically inclined, I believe that's an AKG 414. And, uh, which I don't, I don't know if that was... 
maybe that's why Al's looking at it. Maybe he'd never seen anyone sing into one of those before. I, I don't know if that's <laughs> such a, that's, that's a mic that was used often for uh, overhead on the drums because hmm. it has a really nice oh, okay. range of very, you know, it can pick up lows, it can pick up highs, like from the cymbals and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it is a very smooth vocal mic, whatever it was. She sounded great. Uh, Lisa Popeil singing, uh, obviously on Mr. Popeil. Yeah. Uh, a song about her dad. Sam Popeil. And, uh, yeah, Al just is, he's just amazed. He can't figure that out at all. <laughs> he just can't believe what's going on there. And she's she's just trying to sing her part. You know, la, 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 memories, right? And he's, he's <laughs> over there mugging for, you know, I'm there with a camera, so, of course, he, he's, he's making a face. And, and uh, you know, and of course, the publisher thought, oh, this needs to be on two pages. This is, this is priceless. <laughs> So there you go. Now, now Lisa uh, uh, sang on a, a number of things that we did over the years, uh, and was also a, a good friend of the band. I mean, you know, we we uh, I guess I guess we had met her around this time, you know, for Mister Popeil. But uh, you know, it, uh, we stayed friends with her. She came out on tour with us on the Strings Attached tour, and and was one of the singers. And uh, uh, she's great. So she sings great and uh, is a great person and, and uh, you know, and not that anyone else wasn't, you know, is the reason we didn't see them again. But, you know, it's always nice to work with people that uh, that you like and that can tolerate us. That's important, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, there may be some people that, that, that come through the process and do some recording with Al and think maybe he's being a little too meticulous about stuff. You know, he's taking the comedy a little too seriously. But that's what makes it so great that's yeah. what makes it work that's what's you know fed his career and his popularity uh you know for for more than 40 years yeah. at this point so yeah he is meticulous and if you can't hang with that then do your album and and get out and you're going to appear in bermuda's book someday and you're not going to get a dollar or a picture or a copy of the book so there take that petsy powell and andrea robinson actually I would send Patty some pictures. I'd send Patty. Pictures. Okay. Maybe I'll, I'll look her up. And, you know, she she deserves to know that that I'm making a buck off of her. Now it must be fairly safe to say that it wasn't a coincidence that Lisa Popeil was brought in to do Mr. Popeil. It would be an incredible coincidence, but I'm I'm sure it wasn't. I mean, obviously, you know, she was she was a singer, and and uh, you know, it wasn't like you know we need you to learn how to sing because it would be really cool to have you on this song. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, she was already. <laughs> she was already up to speed in terms of her craft. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I, you know, she was obviously called in for that because I don't, I don't know if she sang on anything else, uh, on, on those songs. Be and I, and I guessing that because I don't see her in photos with the other girls. Mm -hmm. So they were not all, and judging by Al's shirt as well. That's how I can sort of tell what daisies were taken is, uh, by what he's wearing and by who's in the pictures. Oh, okay. uh, I, I couldn't tell it quite well enough to put specific dates on specific photos other than to say, yeah, it was October 2nd through 5th or 3rd through 5th or whatever it is. I mean, I know it's in those those ranges mm -hmm. and that we were finished with our work on October 1st because the drums are no longer there. It's like I'm finished with the 5th or 6th song. I'm out of here. I'll see you tomorrow with my camera. Oh, so you, <laughs> you were only there to take photos. You weren't actually performing on any of these. You know, I'm, I'm going to guess... I, because the ratchet is there, I'm going to guess I was doing some overdubs 
on okay. something. I would have to look up and see, you know, if we were doing uh, the polka, then, uh, you know, it's it's very likely, it's very likely that I was there to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, the, uh, if anything had tambourine on it, uh, I'd have to, I'd have to look at the song list yeah. to see. But I'm sure I I don't know if I came down just to take pictures. I mean, I that that sounds like something I would have done, but. Uh, I, I think I had a reason to be there. I probably didn't need to be there all three days. I probably just wanted to be there to hear it go by. I may have been recording tapes as people were doing their takes. That's where I have some of the archive oh, right, material, right. The, the sounds that I do. Is I, I would run a cassette of everything that was coming over the speakers, basically. But it was direct. I mean, it wasn't with a microphone. I mean, it was everything that was going through the board. So if, uh, like on the uh, teaser video for the Ricky chapter... There's audio on that video on YouTube that that has Al and Tress talking about the inflection of "Let me be in your show, <laughs> let me be in your show, let me be in your show," <laughs> you know. And you can hear Al talking back and forth. And they they stop the tape, you know, in the middle of her singing. You know, she's she's like, you know, I'm sorry, what what I, you know, what exactly is the thing? And they're going back and forth. And then they, you know, she says something funny and all that. Well, none of that's on tape except on my tape. Wow. That's not on the recording because. They stopped the recording. Yeah. But my tape was still rolling, so you can still hear what they were saying to each other. <laughs> anyway, so I've got, you know, I've got stuff like that. So that may have been what I was doing there. I mean, you know, e- even at this early stage, I was kind of archiving stuff. I mean, I was the archive guy. So, um, you know, I mean, there, I may have been doing more than taking pictures, you know. Uh, there are color photo counterparts to all of these as well, by the way. Mm. Um, but in, in figuring out who did what and when... Uh, no, I think she was called in just to do Mr. Popeil, and, and that was it. Lisa, of course, is another friend of the podcast, and we had her over two episodes on episode 37-inch and 38-inch. And you can listen to those episodes back on our website, 2000inch.com. All right, let's uh, move on to the next set of pictures, and it looks like we've got a whole bunch more of uh, people we've seen already, but let's go through uh, these pictures one by one. Wow. Okay. Upper left, we have Jimmy Z. He, he is, uh, I would say he's actually recording at that point. I would say the tape is rolling and he's blowing into his horn and, and oblivious to my taking his picture. And, uh, and, uh, which is probably good. These I tell you, these guys, they, you know, they get paid for the session. Then they want a dollar for the photo. You're going to use that photo. You're going to write a book or something. I want a dollar. I want a dollar. Darn it. Yeah, you know, he and I—he uh, uh, and I have sort of been in touch over the years. But we—I uh, did send him some photos recently, and then I resent him once I had, uh, as I was getting into the book, I—I uh, I scanned some stuff from the contact sheets. But I also, once the negatives were scanned, I sent him like actual real, you know, nice scans of these things. Nice. So, uh, including including photos that are not in the book, he could put out his own book or actually a pamphlet, I guess, <laughs> and you would see other photos that did not make it into my book. You know, maybe there are a couple of photos of him playing sax, and it's like, ah, you know, we don't need two of those. You know, this one's clearly better. We'll use this one. So that's, uh, you know, I, I know there are more photos, but, uh, you know, this this was certainly, a lot of them probably look alike. And it looks like you were taking this photo through the glass. You can kind of see a reflection. I, I definitely would have been in the control room. And, uh, um, you know, I, I mean, if I'm out in the studio and I'm clicking away, you, the mic is going to hear it. Plus, he doesn't need that kind of distraction. It's enough that he looks in the control room and there's a ton of people looking at him and one of them's got a camera, you know. But, but uh, 
No, I, I, I wouldn't do any of this stuff while we were actually working, you know, recording, you know, in the, in front of a mic. No, I, I, I wouldn't do that. Uh, so obviously anything else, you know, where we're out in the, you know, like in the lower right photo, for example, I mean, you know, she's not actually recording. I mean, I'm just, we're between takes and I'm just, you know, taking some pictures and, and Tony, the engineer, you know, will wait till I leave and then he'll roll tape mm -hmm. and then he can get started. He knows, you know, he knows I know better than to be out there while he's rolling tape. In fact, while we're on that photo of Lisa, you know, yes, we just saw a giant photo of her before, but this is another different photo. This is a photo of her looking at the camera, you know, uh, uh, you know, not just sort of looking at the mic, trying to maybe sing her part for Al or something, but, you know, this is a picture, you know, she posed for me. And I have a few others of her as well uh, that are not in the book. I sent her nice, nice uh, high-res files of each of those as well. So that, that was that was nice, and she appreciated that. Uh, she didn't ask for a dollar to be in the book, which is very nice. <laughs> I, I might send her a dollar anyway. Going back to the picture of Jimmy Z, it was nice of him to put down his beer while he was uh, recording yes. his sax part. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. You know what? I can probably, I can look at the original scan and, and probably tell you what beer he was drinking. <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a beer aficionado, so I can't tell like by the label or the shape of the bottle, but you know, there's probably a way to find out. Maybe there's some other photos, you know. Yeah. Maybe there's blackmail. Maybe I can get my dollar back. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Everything's a dollar. You hear me talk about a dollar here and a dollar there. It adds up. It does. It adds up. You know, I, I could, yeah. I could, you know, there's, there's 20, 22, $25 at stake here. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. You go somewhere, you can eat, eat a meal. You can eat two meals at Taco Bell for that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's look down below uh, Jimmy's photo uh, in the control room. Obviously, a posed photo. Hey, everybody, line up. Let me get a photo. You know, I'm the guy with the camera, and Jay's looking at me. Geez, we've done enough with the camera already, Bermuda. If that's your real, if that's your real name, I said, well, that's what Al calls me, so that's, that's what's on my paycheck, as you as you know. Uh, so on the left, uh, Jay Levy, uh, Andrea Robinson, Petsy, uh, Al, Patty Brooks. And uh, now I, 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 the photo there was, I'm going to say that was a flash photo, possibly. I'm going to guess it was a flash photo because there's a flash in the, uh, in the uh, window off yeah. to the right. And also right. everyone's got a, a really clean, you know, evenly lit look. So I, I will say that was a flash. But again, you know, without, you know, video cameras and stuff around, it's okay if I use a flash now and then. Uh, the under under Petsy's arm, there's some speakers there, some little like round cones, and there's one, the right hand one, like almost by her elbow, is a little square, and it's about a, a six inch square cube, and it's got one speaker in it, and that's called an oratone, A-U-R-A-T-O-N-E. And those were used back in the day, back you know, 1983 anyway, those were used when you would do a mix in a studio way back. They used to do a mix for AM radio. And then because the, the, the frequency range on AM is, is different than it is on FM radio. Hmm. And they would do a mix for FM. And they would ship uh, like special promos to the AM stations. And then they would ship like a full range promo to the FM station. Well, the way they could figure out how an AM station kind of sounded is they would mix using these oratone speakers because they weren't they weren't like full range speakers they were the kind of speakers you would have like in a car at mm. the time you okay. know car speakers are great now back then you would have a, a single speaker maybe you know 
maybe. And and an AM radio, you know, AM, FM, but, you know, you still listen to AM radio a bit. And in order to figure out how it would sound best on an AM radio, they would mix through these speakers. And if it sounded good on these speakers, it was going to sound good in a car. Now, again, this was just for the radio stations. This isn't something that you would get and play on a turntable. But this was so that on AM radio, the, the song wouldn't sound really mid-rangey and boxy. You know, it would sound, you know, they would, they would uh, dial that out so that it didn't sound that way. So it sounded a lot smoother. You know, if you take out some of the mid-rangey kind of stuff, you know, all of a sudden the song sounds like it's got some high end. You know, even if the speaker isn't capable of doing it, you know, your mind hears it that way. It's, it's a better balance of tones across the audio spectrum. Anyway, but the speakers themselves were not, were hardly high fidelity speakers, and they had an unfortunate nickname. Instead of Oratone, it was Awful Tone. <laughs> <laughs> and they are, they are still known. I don't know. I, you know what? I've not seen them in a studio in, in 30 years. Yeah. And nobody would use them at home. I mean, they're not, they're not good speakers. They were literally, you know, so you could mix and, and, uh, make it sound good on an AM car radio. Were any of Al's songs mixed on those for AM radio? Uh, at that point, no. No. Uh, and not because AM, AM was you know a little limited on frequency, but mostly like car stereos just didn't sound good. By 83, they sounded pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and uh, you know, they had uh, you know, uh, two-way speakers you know, at, at that time, which you know, they'd have a, 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 maybe a 6 by 9 kind of a woofer mid-range, and then they have a little tweeter built into theirs for some high end. And you were able to capture as much, you know, as much as the AM radio could do. But using these speakers was mostly because car speakers just weren't that good. Mm. Um, you know, not that not that if you had an FM radio playing through your car speakers, it was much better, but if you had an FM radio, chances are you had better speakers. So, you know, but I, I, we're talking back in the 70s and, and into the 80s a little bit, and then everything... You know, car manufacturers up their game. They started put a better audio in cars. Uh, you know, so so there was less less of, of uh, a need to make a separate mix for AM radio. Uh, I I don't uh, I don't recall Scotty Brothers. You know, putting out any AM radio singles. All right, we have one more picture to look at here in the upper right corner. Ah, okay. Yes, Al. Uh, lovely photo of Andrea, Patty, and Petsy. You know, and Al Al's got to stick his face in there and. And, uh, you know, again, look, again, looking at that microphone, like he's never seen it before. I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy. No, just every, every, you know, everyone was very cooperative, uh, at every step of the way, you know, from people that saw this all the time to people that came in to do an overdub who had no idea who I was, you know, they didn't see me on drums. I'd already done my parts and, you know, I'm in there with a camera just taking pictures, but you know, since, the engineer and Rick and Al let me do it. It's like, well, I, I guess that's, you know, he was, he's one of them or he was hired by them or whatever. So if I right. said, let's take a picture, they were, they're on board. So moving on to the next page, we get four great shots of Al on the mic. Oh, oh my. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, well, first, first off, let me, you know, as, as with, uh, when we're talking about Ricky and then the Rocky Road chapters, you know, I pointed out some of the photos that have been seen before that we actually printed up back in 1983 and, you know, made 8x10s. And then, and then uh, every time you saw one of those pictures, it was taken from one of those 8x10s. Uh, this is a chapter, and the rest of the chapters, none of these have been seen before. None of these were ever printed in any way, shape, or form 
other than to make a contact sheet, other than, you know, you're just looking at the negative strips. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, these are all brand new to, to the world. The, the publisher loves that picture in the upper left yes. <laughs> of Al pulling yes. the headphones <laughs> off of his ears and, and grimacing like that. He used, That's one of the handful of uh, promo photos that were sent out, you know, for, for the announcement back in August. You know, for people that, you know, needed to know, well, what's in this book you're talking about? You know, well, here's some sample photos. That was one of the photos he put out there. And uh, and it's not, I'm not saying it's a bad photo. I'm just saying that's that's like his favorite photo of Al. I don't know if that was ever in the running to be the cover or, or anything else. That actually, if his face wasn't in the middle, that could have been used on the special edition to go across both covers. Ah. The problem is yeah. the spine would go right down his face. Right. Well, for those who do have the special edition... Uh, the book shipped in a box with a sticker of this on the front. Oh, right. Yeah, he used, uh, yeah, he printed up some of those. He just, he loves that photo. There's a couple of photos he loves. He loves the photo of Al fixing his tie in Ricky, but the one where he's grimacing, mm-hmm. where he's making a, a face. Yep. He loves this photo, uh, which is, and I'm not saying I don't, but I just, you know, uh, Matthew at 1984, you know, this is one of his favorite photos. Uh, and then the other pictures are, uh, variations thereof. Now you see, Alice is uh, singing into a different mic than than that other sort of squared off rectangular thing that that uh, you saw him at before. And chances are, this was more of a real vocal mic. And this was staged. This was not while he was actually singing vocals for any of the the tracks, was it? No, he may have been just sort of running through it or or doing a test. You know, this was not. I would not have taken pictures while tape was rolling. Also, I'm going to guess by the, the uh, uh, look, and I'll, well, actually, I can see shadows that I would have shot flash here. Yeah. So you will see flash in the studio shots where you really wouldn't see them on the video set. You know, a couple of them, but you know, I, I avoided flash on that. All right, let's move on to the next page—a two-page spread here. <laughs> oh boy! Well, you got you got Rick off to the left, drinking probably a coffee. You got Jay Levy, you know, is on the right, Al's manager, doing something, being wacky. They're not, they didn't do this for the camera. They're having some sort of, there's some kind of communication going on here. And I just was there. There's a, a few pictures with them in it. And I don't know what's happening, but he, they're just, they're very animated. There's a lot going on there. It almost looks like Jay Levy's playing air saxophone. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Maybe he's trying to tell tell Al what to tell Jimmy Z to play. Here, Al, have him do this. You know, in the outro for that boy could dance. Have him have him just go nuts. Have him like just make that squeaky sound. <laughs> or or he may not be doing that at all. And whatever he's doing, Al is, is like, okay, okay, that's, thank you, got it, that's enough. <laughs> you know, Rick looks on sort of disapprovingly. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm the producer. Hey, don't tell Al what to tell that. You tell me what to tell Al what to tell me to tell that guy to play. And then when we flip the page, we've got a sequel to the photo. <laughs> Well, that's Al saying, you didn't take a picture of that, did you? <laughs> and there's Jay holding that ratchet yes. again. Yeah. That was like a favorite prop for everyone. Everyone loved it. <laughs> Maybe he was trying to tell me what to play in the polka. Here, John, go like this. Go. 
Okay, Jay, I know what to play. Thank you. And so, um, in both of these, the previous page and this one, Al's got a, a like a three ring binder on his lap. Would that be lyrics, or what do you think he would have in there? It may be partly lyrics. It may be specific parts. It may be you know the 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 music he's written out. You know for the parts. Uh, I mean, he I always wrote his own vocal parts out. You know, for for the other singers, he would write out the parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he may have been. Uh, you know, following those as they're doing their their overdubs, um, he may be maybe looking at the schedule for for who's doing what. You know, we have a few minutes here. Who's? Uh, oh yeah, uh, you know, Jimmy's coming in at four o'clock or something like that. Yep. So he may he's he's got his whole agenda there. All right, so let's flip the page, and on this one we see Al looking in one of those notebooks at some notes and a couple pictures of Jim West. Ah, by the way, the notebook that Al is looking into, that is not the famous blue uh, three-ring notebook that he used to put all of his ideas in that he talks about, you know, in the early days. Mm. That's a, uh, I think he, at this point, could afford like a new, you know, like he probably spent four ninety eight on that or something. <laughs> That's not, that is not that notebook. Uh, but yes, he's obviously, uh, you know, seeing what's next or or sleeping or, or something. I don't know. <laughs> You're probably unaware that I, I took the photo, you know, until until now, until 2019 when I sent him these and said, look what I've got. He, he'd never, <laughs> I'd never seen it before. These were never, you know, never printed. And it also looks like Al's not wearing any shoes or socks. That's, yeah. He often came in, he wore Birkenstocks, uh, you know, from his college days. He, he would wear Birkenstocks and he wore those frequently. And of course, you don't wear socks with sandals. <laughs> so he was just being cozy and uh and uh was was barefoot nice now if uh this shot of uh of jim up top on the top right uh he is behind the board and there's going to be a, a better picture of that board a little later and just uh i don't know what he's doing you know maybe thinking he can engineer better than tony you know it's uh and <laughs> and the the truth is later on jim became a, a very good uh very capable engineer, sound designer, key, very decent keyboard player. Um, you know, he's, he's a one-man band. Wow. You know, so he's just kind of sitting there. Maybe he's listening to a play. He's listening to a part he had just recorded, something like that. And if you look at the photo below, and he's doing that awful chord again yeah. with his <laughs> left hand, maybe he's, maybe he's listening to that back going, hey, I should have done that. <laughs> In the top photo, the top right photo, behind Jim, in the left side of the photo, you can see one of these 24-track machines. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and all of those little kind of squares, those white sort of rectangles on the front, those are all the meters, the volume meters. You know, uh, Now you would have an LED meter, but uh, for each of the channels, for each of the 24 channels. Wow. And then the tape reels are up top, and you can sort of make out, you know, you're looking directly into the side of it, but that, those are... Uh, that's two inch tape on a on a reel that's ten and a half inches, and depending on the speed, I think you could either get about fifteen or, or I don't know fifteen or twenty two minutes on a reel. I don't something. I forget how much fits on a reel, but hmm. uh, you could change speeds on the machine, and the faster the speed, the better the sound was. Uh, being an analog, you know, with magnetic tape, very slow speed. Uh, yields a lot of noise. That's why cassettes sound kind of noisy. There's there's a lot of kind of 
it's not really hiss, but there's just kind of, you know, white noise. There's noise on there where you don't have that, say, the, the opposite extreme would be a CD that was recorded digitally. There is no analog factor to make any noise. You know, there's no, you know, little magnetic particles being drawn across <laughs> a, a something that reads them and, you know, reads all the noise that goes with it. So that's, they would have had two of those machines there to, to link them up. Probably the other machine was in the other room. They didn't need to be in the same room. Hmm. But I, I think there, there was another room across the hall. In fact, out that door that's right, that you can see right past Jim's head. Uh, and across the hall were some more machines in there. So I think it, it linked up with those when they needed to do more than 24 tracks. And then in the bottom photo, we, of course, see Jim's baked potato shirt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very cool. Well, moving on to the next page, we see some new folks in here. Now, there we have, rarely seen, uh, the upper left is Pat Regan. Ah. Now, Pat was brought in to uh, help with sounds and to do some keyboard playing. And, you know, Al, Al was a, a good keyboard player, but, you know, his right hand is very, very good because he's got a regular keyboard, you know, on the accordion. But his left hand is on a series of buttons. It doesn't play keys the way you would play left hand on a keyboard. Uh, so Pat was brought in to... Uh, to flesh that out. I think Al played a little bit of stuff on there. Al eventually learned to play keyboard quite well. Uh, he did all of the keyboards on the Mandatory Fun album, mm. for example. Oh, cool. Oh, wow. All of that stuff on uh, Jackson Park Express, that's all Al. Wow. And uh, oh, wow. so he, he, he became quite good. That's Pat. Pat toured with us in 1985 and uh, again for part of the Monkeys tour. Oh, cool. Uh, and uh, but he recorded uh, with us on N3D and Like a Surgeon, and uh, and he did some or all of Polka Party. He would have done Polka Party with us, I believe. Oh, cool. Uh, below that, uh, Rick gets into the act. Uh, Al is showing Pat, or Pat is showing Al something. Uh, I mean, Al would demonstrate, you know, a, a little line or something like that, you know, a specific thing he wanted Pat to do, and then Pat you know, would play it, you know, uh, you know, quickly and correctly and using his left hand and, you know, he would do the, <laughs> right. the right stuff. So, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, uh, I don't know that Al actually did any keyboards on, uh, on the first few albums, you know, that was, that was all Pat, but he, he gradually got into it and, uh, you know, upper right photo, Al, you know, amazed at something. He's, he's, he's very, very pleased with himself, very surprised yeah. at something. And and the photo below that, rare to see Rick crack a smile, but he's having a good time. He's he's oh, mugging yeah. for the camera while while you know Pat and Al are working. And I'm you know, I got nothing to do. I already did my parts the day before, so I'm just there taking pictures and waiting to hold the ratchet. Yes. And is that uh Tony's head at the bottom there? And that, and the the lower right photo, the right hand lower corner is the back of Tony Papa's head. Tony engineered, uh, he engineered Ricky and Buckingham Blues on the first album, which we recorded those two songs at the Scotty Brothers Studio. That was after the contract was signed, hmm. and then he engineered all of our albums through uh, Alpocalypse, actually, right up almost to the end, and. Uh, I, I don't mean the end of, of Al's career. I mean the end of the uh, contract with Sony. Right, uh, right. The, the last album being Mandatory Fun. But uh, 
yeah, he engineered, uh, you know, th- 13 and 12 and 12 and a half albums or something like that wow. with us. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and was very easy to work with, very capable. Uh, when it came time to, to transition into Pro Tools, uh, he was right there. You know, we, we had some people come in and, and assist, but he was always the guy making sure the thing sounded right. He always handled the mixes. He was always in charge. And uh, we still we still chat with him. We still I'm still in touch with him. And, uh, you know, I sent him the photos that were in the book. I let him know that there, he was, there was a nice photo of him that was going to be across two pages, but uh, that I had spent his dollar <laughs> and that I'd run out of books to give away. So, <laughs> sorry, Tony. <laughs> We'll see a different picture of Tony later on in this chapter. But I have a question. Uh, you mentioned that you had recorded at Scotty Brothers Studio. How many different albums did you record at the Scotty Brothers Studio? Uh, we recorded there through the first part of uh, the Running With Scissors album. Oh, wow. So so if you count up to that, I, I you know, however many that is, <laughs> into Running <laughs> right. With Scissors. Because in 1999... Uh, Scotty Brothers sold off uh, everything to, uh, uh, well, the, uh, the people at Volcano uh, in New York City got, uh, I think, all of the, the artists' contracts and stuff like that. You know, that's how Al transitioned over to Sony, uh, basically. And so the, as they were selling their facility, you know, we were in the middle of an album. So we had to go finish up somewhere else. So when it came time to do the, we did the originals for uh, Running With Scissors, so Albuquerque and stuff like that, at the Scotty Brothers studio. And then when it came time to do the parodies, we went into another studio, the uh, uh, Paramount, um, so I've got it written down somewhere, and uh, with Tony mm-hmm. at the helm. I mean, Tony was, was being paid by, uh, uh, you know, the new label at that point. You know, he was not just an employee of Scotty Brothers. I mean, Tony was an employee of Scotty Brothers and, and worked on all of their artist stuff, most of their artist stuff. So, you know, I don't think he got anything special necessarily for doing our records. He was just, he was the house engineer and we're glad he was. But when it came time to leave that facility, we took him with and and uh, and paid him directly. So he worked in some other studios with us, Mad Dog Studios we were at for, for I think, Poodle Hat and uh, straight out of Linwood for, for some of those things. Um, and then later we wound up at, uh, uh, eventually our last album was, uh, recorded at Dave Way's, uh, at the Way Station and Dave Way was the engineer on that album. Hmm. Uh, so that was the first time we'd done an album without Tony. We, we recorded at Westlake, uh, studios, which is where uh, Michael Jackson recorded oh, wow. uh, most of his stuff. Wow. Ton of, ton of major oh, wow. artists, uh, recorded there. We, we did a fair bit of recording there. And uh, we used the Michael Jackson room to record drums. And there were other rooms to record drums in. But we, we used that to record drums and some basic things because I liked working in that room. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then when it came time to do the overdubs, they would go to another room that was a little less expensive than, you know, the Michael room. And because that was the big room there. I think I, it was Studio D maybe. It had an outside entrance from the alley, like a secret entrance so Michael could go in and out so he wasn't going in and out on, uh, <laughs> right. you know, it was on Santa Monica Boulevard was the front of this, the right. facility. And so, you know, the people weren't going in and out there. He could just get into a car and take off. Uh, so we did stuff there, but again, with Tony at the helm and, uh, Tony was great and we still, uh, uh we, we like him and we still, uh, stay in touch with him and 
you know, very happy to have him uh, in, in the book. All right, let's move on to the next set of pictures on the next page. And you have Rick Derringer mugging for the camera in the picture on the left there. Yeah, and, and with Jim behind him kind of unamused, you know, with, with me right. running around with the camera. Yeah, I can I can just imagine, I should have put a talk, I should put talk bubbles. I'm going to do an addition and put talk bubbles above, you know, thought bubbles above everyone's head, you know, what they're thinking while I'm taking a picture. And I can just imagine him, Thinking, oh, go ahead, take a picture. What are you going to do? Put it in a book? Give me a buck. <laughs> yeah. Hey, give me a copy. Send me a digital file, whatever that means. I'm assuming he's happy in that picture and he's not trying to rip his hair out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's just being, he's being silly. Unlike, unlike on the other side, Al is, is being thoughtful and he's contemplating something or I don't, I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> He's just, you know, and again, uh, taken with a flash because I can see, uh, one, the evenness of the, the tones on his face, and two, there's a sharp shadow behind him. Mm. And same with Rick, for that matter. Now, moving on to the final photo of the chapter, this is Tony Papa. Oh, that's a nice photo. Well, first off, that's a, that's a nice photo of Tony. Uh, Tony knew how to pose for a photo. Nice <laughs> smile, not cheesy, not grimacing, yeah. not, you know. <laughs> bunching up his face it's, you know, <laughs> smile tony okay how's this how's this you got them i have a couple of pictures but this this was the nice one but what's also cool is you get to see where he works you get to see yeah. the, uh, the board and that's uh he liked that's a neve board n-e-v-e and uh he liked the neve board he would always when we were in another studio he would make sure there was a Neve board there because he just he liked the sound of that mm -hmm. and people still do you know it's an old analog board mm -hmm. but people still like the sounds of those. Under his hand, like kind of at the bottom in the middle of the photo, there's something that looks like a keyboard or some kind of thing. And that's basically, that that allows uh, him to operate the tape machines oh. without having to get up and walk over oh, to them. Oh, very cool. So that's like a remote uh, a remote control for the tape, operated, oh, wow. uh, tape machines. And on the left-hand side, in the middle of the photo, there's kind of a grayish box with with some buttons on one side and then some uh, like a bunch of like little sort of white buttons running down two rows of yeah. white buttons. Yeah. That is a, I'm not absolutely sure what the brand is, but that would be a drum machine that we used for uh, some kind of sequencing on something. I forgot hmm. what song used sequencing on it. Or that may have been there just to use as a click track. What I would do is when we were using a click, I would prefer to have like a drum beat playing because it's a lot easier to play to a drummer than it is to play to tick, 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 tick. That's just, you know, it's just, it's easier when you hear something else musical going on. Yeah. So even drums. So that, that was used to, to lay down, you know, a, a click that I could, you know, was comfortable with. And, uh, and that's it. So that's, that's in the control room. That's, that's his, uh, you know, that's his cockpit there. <laughs> and uh, that's where all the, the magic happened. You know, he's responsible for us sounding as as good as we did i mean you know we we did the playing but he made sure that everything sounded good that sonically the drums sounded good and that the vocals sounded good and that you know things were balanced right by the time you know you hear it on a record you know he was he and uh alan and rick would make sure it was mixed balanced you know nicely so that's that's where all the magic was done and they mixed in the same room that they recorded in for whatever that's worth sometimes you'll record somewhere and then you go mix somewhere else hmm. Uh, in this case, they actually uh -huh. they mixed in that room, uh, the same room that the tracks oh, wow. were done. 
All right. Well, that's the last picture in the chapter, A Glimpse into the Recording Process Overdubs. Thank you for walking us through that, Bermuda. And we'll be back the next episode for Chapter 4. In the time since we recorded this bonus episode with Bermuda, we have had the pleasure of interviewing keyboardist Pat Regan. To hear that interview, head to weirdalpodcast.com and check out episode 89-inch. And for our interview with vocalist and longtime Weird Al collaborator Lisa Popeil, be sure to check out episode 37-inch and episode 38-inch. And while you're there, be sure to check out our interview with the saxophone, harmonica, and flute player Jimmy Z. Zavala on episode 55-inch. That's it for this episode. Be sure to join us on the next Black and White and Weird All Over bonus centimeter episode where we will begin chapter 4. Eat it video shoot. If you have not already done so, be sure to check out and subscribe to our weekly podcast that covers the career, the life, and the universe of Weird Al Yankovic. Brand new full inch episodes drop every Wednesday. Bonus episodes like this book series with John Bermuda Schwartz can drop at any time, but are always available first for our supporters at patreon.com slash 2000 inch. For everything about our podcast and incredible past episodes and guests, be sure to visit weirdalpodcast.com or 2000inch.com. See See you you next time. time! That was Dave and Ethan's 2008 Weird Al Podcast. Black and white and weird all over. Bonus episode 570. Here, Al, have him do this. Have him just go nuts. Have him, like, just make that squeaky sound. Ah, ah.